Civics 101 teaches us that journalism is critical to our country. Evan Smith, founder and CEO of the Texas Tribune, is committed to making sure Texans have critical information available so that we can best participate in our democracy. We search for the truth and we tell people what we find. That was my answer in the moment, which I frankly think was a pretty good answer. But it doesn't really get at the complexity of what it is that we do. Yeah, we search for the truth and we tell people what we find. We also hold people in power and institutions accountable without regard to party or partisanship. But we also tee things up for people in their busy lives to stop and pay attention to. And it's that third one that, to me, gets directly to this question of how you get people to stand up and step up and participate, whatever that means. Vote, knock on your legislator's door, write a letter to your congressman, go to a community meeting or, God forbid, convene one yourself about the quality of your public school. It all begins with knowing that there's something to pay attention to. And we, in journalism, have a responsibility to grab people almost by the lapels and say, you need to stop and pay attention to this. We discuss the constantly evolving media landscape and how the Texas Tribune has adapted as both a newsroom and a business. I'm Andrew Kaufman, and this is The Strategist, presented by the George W. Bush Presidential Center. Our guest today is Evan Smith, the CEO and co-founder of the Texas Tribune. He's also the host of Overheard with Evan Smith on PBS and podcast host Point of, Point of Order. Uh, a great listen if you, haven't, if you haven't heard it before. And Evan is a vanguard of journalism, and we, we're excited about this conversation. Evan, thank you so much for spending some time with us. I'm so pleased to be here. It's never more fun than to talk about this work. <laughs> Our co-host is Bill McKenzie, who knows a thing or two about journalism, having won a Pulitzer Prize back in the day, former Dallas Morning News editorial page author. Bill, thank you so much for spending some time also. Great to be here. So, Evan, take us back in time to 2009. You're about to co-found the Texas Tribune. Set the stage for us. What's going on then? So I had been, Andrew, the editor of Texas Monthly for many years, a magazine where I ended up spending almost 18 years, and I loved working at that magazine. I thought it was going to be the best job I'd ever have, and I thought they'd honestly carry me out of that office in a pine box horizontally. (laughs) But, you know, after a period of time, you begin to think, I've done everything I came to do. You begin to think about what you might want to do next. And my eyes honestly went to the Capitol, both literally and existentially. And a concern I had that there were not enough people in the state of Texas paying attention to things that mattered. We have had a terrible run of voter turnout at or near the bottom of the 50 states at that point, And for many years, actually, after that, we have an incredibly disengaged state. The book of business in Texas, Andrew, is so important. We're superlative in every way. You know, we have the most contiguous miles with the Mexican border. Immigration is a Texas issue, first and foremost. National issue, but we consider it our issue. We have the most people in Texas without health insurance of any state in the country. Health care is everybody's issue, but it's our issue. We produce the most crude oil of any state in the country. Energy is our issue. We sue the federal government proudly more than any other state. Federalism is our issue. There are so many things. We have the second highest higher ed enrollment, the second highest public ed enrollment. Texas is an important player, maybe the most important player in a national conversation about policy. And of course, we have the most interesting political figures in the entire world coming from Texas who are at the center of every important conversation. And yet the state has been historically, in the modern era at least, incredibly disengaged. I believed, and others at the time that we started the Texas Tribune believed, that you could draw a line from that to the concept of low-information voters. Once upon a time, Bill's alma mater, the Dallas Morning News and the Houston Chronicle, the Austin Statesman and the city where I live – And a host of other papers in Texas did a really good job of keeping people informed. 
But the economics of the for-profit newspaper business have changed. The ability of those papers to do the job at the level of ambition they once upon a time did that job, that's changed. And so by the time I, I, I left Texas Monthly in 2009 to start the Texas Tribune, the number of reporters at the Capitol was about a third of what it had been when I got to Texas in 1991. The Dallas Times-Herald was gone. The Houston Post was gone. The San Antonio Light was gone. And I had, and others again, who joined in this effort to start the Tribune, had a nagging sense that this was all heading in the wrong direction and that we needed to create a reliable, credible source of news and information that did not rely on the for-profit economic model and would be nonpartisan because there were plenty of places to go to have the voices in your head reaffirmed (laughs) on both the left and the right. We didn't want to be part of that problem. We simply wanted to be a provider of information, knowledge. For us, this was not about journalism. It was about knowledge. For us, this was not about journalism. It was about democracy, about creating more thoughtful and productive citizens, motivating people to participate civically, however they chose to participate. So we started the Tribune in 09. That was the mindset. The mindset was, how can we be a public good? How can we exist in the public interest? Didn't know that it would work, but we're sitting here now nearly 12 years later, and thankfully it, it turned out to be a, a, positive, a positive thing. So, so why do you think your model has worked? You know, Bill, I've asked myself that question many times, and I, I've tried not to think about it too hard because I, I play tennis. That's the one thing I do other than, than do journalism. And if I think about my serve too much, I'm sure to net the ball. So I try not to think about it. I try not to think about exactly how this model has worked as well as it has because I worry that I'll see the flaws, at least intellectually, in it and be motivated to make changes that will not be beneficial to us. What I can tell you is the instinct at the beginning was that the PBS model, the NPR model, of asking end users and stakeholders to help cover the costs, go to regular folks who might be, in the case of television stations, viewers or radio stations, listeners, in our case, readers, and say, if you believe there's value in this work, chip in a couple bucks, a membership model, augmented by going to wealthy individuals who typically support other things that consider themselves to be public goods. And here in Texas, we have the good fortune of having more millionaires and billionaires than any other state. More than 10% of the Forbes 400 every year are residents of Texas. This is what the military would call a target-rich environment (laughs) if you're in the business of raising money from rich individuals. We have a number of deep-pocketed institutional philanthropies like the Meadows Foundation, Houston Endowment, the Mitchell Foundation, and on and on and on. And there are big corporations, Fortune 1,500, 100s uh, here, who might be persuaded to support this cause as they support others. So we built a model that really relied on individuals, foundations, and corporations to fund our operations. The principle at work, though, always, Bill, was give everything away for free. If the goal is to get more people into a conversation about the priorities of a community or the things that matter to them, and the first thing you do is erect a barrier in the form of a paywall between them and that content, you're doing it wrong. So the goal was then and remains now, give the content away for free, but find other people to fund your ability to make it free. So everything we produce has been free for 12 years. Everything we've produced has been given away to other newspapers to republish or TV stations to re-air or websites to repost for free. Um, We've worked the public good angle to a fare thee well. We do these public events, as you know. We've done, on average, pre-pandemic at least, we were doing about 50 a year around the state of Texas, all but the Texas Tribune Festival, free to attend. Um, I think that the free model has been a big part of our success. 
I think that our instincts at the beginning about there being enough people who would be willing to put their hand in their pocket to support this public good, I think that's also true. Here's a bit of advice that I got at the very beginning from somebody who's a Republican political fundraiser on behalf of candidates. She said, go talk to people who might be persuaded to support you. But when you talk to Democrats, talk about journalism. When you talk to Republicans, talk about Texas. Because Republicans who you go to ask for money from are going to hear journalism and they're going to think liberal. But tell them that what you're doing, and there's a more than a bit of truth to this, is you're trying to make the state better by making people who live here better informed and more engaged. That has been the play we've run all along. And for better or worse, I would say better. It's been successful. I sit here now, not quite at 12 years in business, more than $93 million raised to pay for serious journalism. Money in the bank, held in place during the pandemic year, didn't lay anybody off, cut a salary or furlough anybody. We continue to invest in technology and invest in new reporting positions, spend money to cover a great big state like Texas. And I'm so gratified to see how well it's done. So to what extent does a model like yours, nonprofit free, depend on a locale or a state having a strong identity? Well, there's, I think it's, it's different in every state. You know, I like to say if you've seen one nonprofit journalism organization, you've seen one nonprofit journalism organization. They're not all the same. In fact, by design, they're all different, and they should be different because every community is different. We have people around the country for the last 12 years come to Austin to try to understand how we've managed to succeed. They ask a version of the question that you asked, but they do it in the form of a trip to Austin to kick our tires and to talk to our folks. And we're always very generous with our time because we think it's our responsibility to help other people because people helped us. So we tell them what we do. What we don't do is offer to go into their community and start something because we shouldn't be the ones to go into a community like a a guy on a white horse Right in a town. Don't worry about everybody. The cavalry's arrived. Stand down. We're going to save your journalism. What we can do is tell people, here's how we did it, and then they can take the things that they think would apply in their communities and start their own Texas Tribune. So all over the country, there are people who are copying our model. The Nevada Independent in Las Vegas, Mississippi Today in Jackson, Mississippi, Cal Matters in Sacramento, California on and on and on. And we've tried to be a best practices laboratory for this kind of work. Um, I think that, you know, not everybody has to have the budget that we have. One of the most interesting to me nonprofit news organizations in the country is called VT Digger in the state of Vermont. They're a statehouse accountability watchdog and explanatory journalism organization that has been in business for a number of years. Obviously, like the footprint of Vermont is smaller than the footprint of Texas. The footprint of this organization is considerably smaller than the footprint of ours, but what they're doing works for Vermont. So I don't think there's any one way to do it. Like everything else in life, there are a million wrong ways, but no one right way. So so we're living in this period where we're seeing a lot of anxiety, if you will, about the decline in local journalism. Right. So, Justified, I would say. Okay. So that's kind of my question. Do you see more hope? Do You, you mentioned Vermont Digger right. and all these right. other examples. Uh, or are you really concerned? I think multiple things can be true at the same time. I think it's possible to be both optimistic and to be concerned. Let me take the concern part first. I'm concerned about the tendency of big hedge funds and conglomerates that don't really care about journalism but do care about commodities. I'm concerned to see them buy up newspapers and then gut them like so many whitefishes, cut the staffs, cut the expenses reduce the footprint of what their ambitions can be. I worry about that. I worry that communities deserve to have a reliable place to go to be told what's going on and that increasingly these folks are coming in 
and not viewing the fiduciary responsibility that they have to the community the way that I might, or the public interest responsibility the way that I might. Or that their web pages are so covered in ads you can't find the content. I mean, I, I can't go to the websites of most of the big newspapers in Texas just because I find the experience to be so off-putting that I would just rather get to a story some other way. Um, so that's concerning to me. Um, what else is concerning to me is that the, 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 the reduced footprint of these big news organizations are resulting in what the former editor of the Dallas Morning News once described to me as a transition from being a newsroom of record to a newsroom of choice. That part I get. We don't have the resources that we once upon a time had to do everything that we used to do, and the community still kind of wants us to do the old book of business. Can't do that now. My quibble, not with the news, Dallas News necessarily, but with some papers, is that when they go from paper of record to paper of choice, what is the choice? What is it that you consider to be, with your reduced footprint and your limited resources, important enough to cover? I would submit to you that there are a lot of communities that are going without that don't know about the fights over public education, that don't know about the fights over immigration or transportation or health care or, or budgets in cities and counties. And these things have a material effect on the lives of every individual, and they cause people to make decisions at election time or to make a decision in the inverse, not to participate at election time. And I really believe that that's the, the greatest responsibility that we in the news business have is to tell people what's going on enough that they feel like they have a stake in the outcomes of fights being waged in their name, and they therefore choose to say at election time, I choose this as opposed to that, or I choose this person as opposed to that person. And in a lot of places, that's just not happening. You know, we, um, we had 11.2 million people turn out to vote in the state of Texas in uh, 2020, the most we've ever had. Previously, uh, about 9 million turned out to vote in the 2016 election, so we had a huge increase. We had the highest percentage of our eligible-to-vote population, 66%. <laughs> Highest percentage since 1992, and yet we were still 46th out of 50 states in voter turnout. We cannot get out of our own way. We talk a lot about wanting to give people the means to participate, but we do everything we possibly can to get in the way of that. And the biggest way, as far as I'm concerned, that we get in the way of that is we don't give people nearly enough information about things going on that they should care about. So how do you make someone care about that? Because we see time and time again, what people get really fired up about is right. is the is Washington politics. That's what, yeah. or is the is just right. the this food that just feeds this machine. But it's it's the the local bill that's going to really affect your life. But, but I, I would submit to you, Andrew, that that it is true that national politics tends to be more of a motivator of people's you know turnout at election time, participation civically across the board. But you know our audience at the Texas Tribune pre-pandemic was an average of 2 million unique visitors per month. Wow. That's awesome. Pre-pandemic. After the pandemic, it was up to 5 million per month. I would, su- I would submit to you that the people of Texas are perfectly capable of getting agitated and animated and activated on issues that affect them when they're presented with information that tells them this is something to pay attention to. I have a son who's at the University of Texas. He's a journalism, sports journalism is his interest, which I told him I, I can't oppose because it has the word journalism in it, <laughs> even though it's a little bit boring to me, to be honest. But he's at Moody College. And before he decided to go to UT and to study journalism, he came down to dinner one night, typical boy of that age, 17, 18, not terribly self-reflective, great kid, but not asking the big existential questions. And he looked at me one night over dinner and he said, what is journalism? And I thought to myself, I've never been asked this question before. Oh my God, 
I couldn't believe in that moment that I froze. And what I came up with was we search for the truth and we tell people what we find. That was my answer in the moment, which I frankly think was a pretty good answer. But it doesn't really get at the complexity of what it is that we do. Yeah, we search for the truth and we tell people what we find. We also hold people in power and institutions accountable without regard to party or partisanship. But we also tee things up for people in their busy lives to stop and pay attention to. And it's that third one that, to me, gets directly to this question of how you get people to stand up and step up and participate, whatever that means. Vote, knock on your legislator's door, write a letter to your congressman, go to a community meeting, or God forbid, convene one yourself about the quality of your public school. It all begins with knowing that there's something to pay attention to. And we, in journalism have a responsibility to grab people almost by the lapels and say, you need to stop and pay attention to this. That's really why the Texas Tribune started. It goes all the way back to your first question. Why did we start the Tribune? Because no one was grabbing us by the lapels. So how do you grab someone by the lapels in 2021? It's, a, it's easier said than done. I think you have to have a strategy to reach people. And we have a team, an audience team of seven or eight right now, led by the amazing Bobby Blanchard, who was a report, a fellow for us when he was at the University of Texas, came and, you know, we call our interns fellows. They're paid positions when they're in college. We knew immediately that Bobby was somebody we wanted to bring onto the staff. And so he did a year fellowship after he left the Tribune with the Dallas Morning News, and then we snapped him right back up, and he is our director of audience. And Bobby, if he were sitting here, would lay out for you in elaborate detail the strategy that we have to reach as many people in as many places on as many platforms as possible. Back in the day that we started the Tribune, the theory was that your strategy to reach people was platform agnostic. It didn't matter whether you were talking about your website or Facebook or Twitter or Reddit or Instagram or anything that may have existed at that time, Snapchat. You had the same strategy. Over time, that's gone from platform agnostic to platform devout. Now you have a devoted strategy for each individual platform, and we work those channels relentlessly, Bobby and his team, to reach as many people as possible. And that now includes off-platform places like Apple News, where we are part of their top story well. They've got two local news organizations that for the last year they've had in a pilot program, we're one of two. And we're getting millions of page views on Apple News from people who've never been to Texas, who have nothing to do with Texas, but who are finding out that we passed permitless carry or one of the most restrictive bans on abortion in the country, or that we couldn't pass in the last days of the session, this bill that would have changed election laws. And they're endlessly fascinated by it the way they're endlessly fascinated by politics generally. We have become part of that national conversation, we the Tribune and Texas, about politics. It's, it's a strange moment, you know? And we have also become, partly by design and partly just because we've been fortunate to do it through the quality of our work, we've become the explainers of Texas to the rest of the country. So when the rest of the country wants to know about somebody, Beto O'Rourke, Ben Crenshaw, or they want to know about a big issue like the changes to election law that didn't pass, they come to us first. Last night, I'm told I haven't seen it on the John Oliver show on HBO. There was a long discussion of the unwillingness of legislators to pass laws that would permit prison facilities to be air-conditioned. This is a, a persistent conversation in Texas, Bill. Probably you remember back in the days when you were working for the newspapers here and elsewhere, you probably remember that we talked about do we have air, properly functioning air conditioning in, in prisons. So the Oliver Show did a whole series of, of uh, bits on that, and they relied on our reporting regularly. 
flash the Texas Tribune stories up about this or this or this. And our great reporter, Jolie McCullough, who covers criminal justice, was featured. This is something that I take a lot of pleasure in. You know, I know that if somebody around the country sees the John Oliver show and sees that the Texas Tribune is the source for much of this, that they can count on it because we're a credible, nonpartisan source of news. So I love the fact that we've become the explainers for everybody else. So, so let me ask you this. Do you think this concern about the decline in local journalism, is this something that journalists mostly fret over? Uh, or is this a, an issue that uh, really has a, a strong uh, effect on our democracy? You know, let's, let's say that there were not enough doctors in Texas. You wouldn't care until you came up to the edge of needing to see one. I don't want to say that every person in the state of Texas, just to pick Texas because I know Texas, is sitting at home at night gnashing his or her teeth over dinner over the decline of local news. But in the middle of a storm, like the one we had in February, or in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of an economic downturn like the one we're now just coming out of, where you want journalism to do its job to give you the information that you need that may, again, in the case of the last year plus, literally be the difference between life and death. You sure are aware of when local news is not doing a sufficient job or is not doing any job at all. Um, During Hurricane Harvey, we played that role. During the family-separated crisis, the humanitarian crisis on the border, we played that role. You know, the workaday stuff that we do may not give people the same motivation to wax poetic about the decline or wax nostalgic about the decline of of local news. But I think in the moment when people need us the most, the fact that there's not nearly as much local news as there was once upon a time, that is a problem for them and they're aware of it. And look, I also think that, you know, we have a problem of not enough information. We also have a problem of active disinformation and misinformation. We have let a virus of a different sort out of a test tube in the last 18 months, four years, where we have given airtime and oxygen to dangerous conspiracy theories and equated them with real information, kind of in a he said, she said, let's leave it their way, that I think is incredibly dangerous and undermining of our democracy. Remember, go back to the beginning. I said this is about our democracy. One way this is about our democracy is that good news has to be the antidote to bad news, not good in the sense of positive, but good in the sense of reliable and credible. And I think that it's dangerous to not have local news when you need it in the middle of a crisis. It's dangerous especially to not have good local news, honest, credible local news, at a time when we're allowing anybody with a theory about the world to be taken seriously. The danger of not solving the problem of misinformation and disinformation with good information is that that bad stuff rises And it becomes the basis for every conversation in a place like Texas. And I worry enormously, Bill, about that. I really do. The... Well, in, in prep for this interview, I watched this this video you did a couple of years ago in 2019 about confirmation bias, and I think right. we've seen we've seen this element of human nature of of and it's it's almost a perfect storm of of all these different outlets, media outlets of different types, including social media. It's easier than ever before to find someone that agrees with what you inherently believe. Right. How how do you combat that? Well, I mean, I first of all, I don't. I don't like it. I mean, my first reaction to it is to recoil from it. You know, the world is situated in a way today that you can walk down the streets of your city, Dallas, with headphones in your ears. You can listen to your preferred satellite radio channel or watch your preferred cable channel 
read your preferred source of news that reaffirms those voices I referred to earlier that are already inside your head. You can go a day or a week or a lifetime without encountering a point of view other than one that you already have. We've stopped talking to each other in this country. We've retreated into our cocoons. We live in the United States of confirmation bias. And I think it's a terrible thing. There was a time when we all sought out people we disagreed with. Even if you ultimately didn't come to agree with them, at least you considered the validity of another point of view other than the one that you have. And I think it's a terrible mistake to just retreat into that cocoon. Um, And we hopefully provide a safe space to borrow a word from college campuses these days where people can consider points of view different from the ones that they already have. We do that through our journalism. We do it through our events. Um, but I don't dispute that this is a big problem. And again, I'm, I'm remembering Daniel Patrick Moynihan's line about how we're all entitled to our own opinions, but we're not entitled to our own facts. He's turning over in his grave today because we are apparently entitled to our own facts. And that's, that's a terrible thing for our country and for our democracy. So not to ask you to go t- too far into how you all make sausage at Texas Tribune. Ask. Oh, well, but give, it, give the listener here a sense of what you all go through when you get a story and you're vetting it. Yep. And you're trying to see both points of view, work out the facts, whatever. Right. Well, let me say, first of all, as the lowly CEO of the Texas Tribune, I am out of the newsroom which is kind of a great thing. You know, I was the editor of Texas Monthly for many years. I was the editor-in-chief and CEO for the first few years of the Tribune. But for a number of years, I have been out of the newsroom. And so in a lot of ways, what I'm telling you is more me with my nose pressed against the glass, but I'm not involved in this stuff. We hire really smart people and we let them do their jobs. We get out of their lanes. The editors of the Tribune have been experienced journalists. They've done this job you know, as reporters before they become editors, they understand how this stuff works. And they're reading every story as it comes in with a suspicious eye because they know that our readers will be suspicious, especially today, a time of historic distrust of the media. They're going to be very critical readers. And they're going to interrogate everything that's presented as fact. And they're going to say, is this the full story? Do we have an adequate... Uh, presentation of the alternate side. We're not going to do false equivalency, but we do want to do real balance and want to present, again, you know, this is the case and this is the alternate case. We have a source diversity project that we started some years ago in which we require reporters and editors to document the sources that they relied on for stories. And we have a spreadsheet that allows us to actually look over time to see whether we're doing a sufficient job of, of, of relying on diverse sources. I mean, we really do take this responsibility very seriously. And, you know, I used to say when I was running Texas Monthly about that magazine that liberals think we're too conservative, conservatives think we're too liberal. That tells me we're doing something right. A version of that is the case here in that I think we make on any given day people on the left angry and people on the right angry. And I sort of think that's a pretty good check on whether we're we're doing a good enough job with our stories, asking whether a story has its thumb on the scale or not. Now, there are always going to be moments when we don't get it exactly right. And one of my concerns about the industry that I've been in now for more than 30 years is we're not terribly good hearing that we've done something wrong. We're not humble. We get defensive. And we don't acknowledge our mistakes in the same way with the same visibility that we make them. And I encourage my colleagues to be humble to accept that you're not perfect. None of us is perfect, and we're going to get things wrong. But go into it every day doing your very best to get things right. And um, 
And, you know, take feedback in a positive way. One of the things, Bill, that's probably a difference from when you started out in journalism is there's really a feedback loop today, as there never had been before. You never had a time as much as today when readers of newspapers or of sites like ours had an opportunity to connect directly with the people, producing reporting, editing stories. Social media is, I mean, it's a pretty big feedback loop. I would say that Twitter is not real life and that you can go too far in listening to people on social media, but I think that feedback loop is important. Um, I just think we have to always strive to do a better job. And, uh, and that involves beginning with, as you said, making sure that our stories are truly living up to our promise to be nonpartisan. So, you know, we, we told you we'd get you out of here in about 30 minutes. So I, I want to... Sure. I, I'd like to take a second. We said we'd talk some about some of Texas's biggest issues. Yep. What would you say is, is Texas... We're going to pin you down. So you've got to name one issue in Texas that's the biggest one. Right. Well, I'm going to give you the answer, but it's going to be a three-part answer. Because <laughs> we'll take it's it. one issue with three parts, and that is the changing population of the state. We have a population of Texas today that's about 29.5 million, but according to the state demographer, it may go to as high as 54 million by 2050. So in the next 30 years, the population of Texas is nearly going to double. So, so one answer, population, but part one is that we're growing precipitously. The second thing is that we're rapidly urbanizing. Right now, Texas has six of the 13 largest cities by population. Five of the 13, pardon me. Five of the 13 largest cities by population in the country, more big cities than any other state. Houston is number four in the country, number one in Texas. San Antonio is number seven. Dallas is number nine. Austin is number 11. And Fort Worth is number 13. Three years ago, Fort Worth was, or two years ago, Fort Worth was 16. Then it went to 15. Then it went to 13. And I'm reliably told that the next census release, it's going to go to 12. So we'll have five of the 12 largest. And El Paso tends to hover around number 20. Right now it's, I think, at 22 but it's been as high as 19 in the last couple of years of population. So really, we have six of the 25 largest cities in the country by population. Only about 3 million people live in rural Texas today out of 29 million. Now, 3 million is many fewer than you might think it was once upon a time, really as a percentage of the overall population. That's really where the decline has happened. 3 million people is still larger than the populations of 18 states, but 3 million is not very many, and Texas is an urban state. Bill remembers a time when at our capital, the fault line was not liberal or conservative or Democrat or Republican. It was rural or urban. And right now that battle is over and urban is won. But rural Texas is still pretty significant. And in fact, if you look at the last couple of elections, rural Texas has elected Ted Cruz, saved Ted Cruz against Beto O'Rourke, saved Dan Patrick over Mike Collier, saved Ken Paxton over Justin Nelson, saved Donald Trump over Joe Biden. The political power of rural Texas is significant. But Texas is a rapidly urbanizing state. And that's the second big issue because the bucket of urban issues is different than the bucket of issues. And then the third thing is demographic inevitability. Population of Texas is changing before our eyes demographically. 59% of Texans are people of color. 41% are white. By 2040, the white population of Texas is apt to be just below a third of the population, according to the state demographer. So we have a fast-growing, rapidly urbanizing, rapidly changing demographically population. And to me, that is the big driver of the future of Texas, and it cuts across every single issue that we could talk about horizontally. So th this is an age-old question, but i got to ask anyway. So is Texas reliably red for the future? Yes. Or are you seeing hues of purple? That's a phrase. You know, Bill, when it comes to this question of Texas turning blue, I am always the last guy airlifted off the roof of the embassy at the end of the war. <laughs> I mean, I am, I am the holdout of holdouts, right? 
the last election cycle was going to be, I think, the last election cycle for probably another 10 years because of redistricting when Democrats had an opportunity to get back in the conversation. And they, they belly flopped. Didn't take back control of the Texas House, didn't take back control of the speakership, didn't have a seat at the table for redistricting, didn't win any congressional seats, came nowhere within winning the Senate race. And okay, they, they knocked the margin that Trump beat the Democrat on the ticket, in this case, Joe Biden, Hillary Clinton the last time, they knocked the margin down from nine points to six points. But you know what you call a Republican candidate who wins an election by only six points, Mr. President. I mean, the fact is, the Democrats who want to claim somehow that getting the margin down from nine to six is a victory are really having to look for something to be happy about. It was a terrible election cycle for Democrats. Now Republicans control the apparatus of redistricting. They'll redraw the lines, as Democrats did when they were in charge. The Republicans will redraw the lines in such a way that it will be an incumbency protection program. And I think the likelihood of Democrats winning elections in Texas in any significant way, taking back control of the House or Senate, winning a meaningful number of congressional seats, or especially winning statewide elections, is largely off the table for the foreseeable future. Now, having said that, that is exactly the time when they they sneak in and they do something. But no Democrat's been elected, as we were talking about before, statewide since 1994. And I see no reason to think that that's going to happen anytime soon. Well, Ivan, we've got you've got a hard stop here. We've got to get you to your next meeting. Thank, Thank you so you, much Andrew. for this time here. Thank, Thank you for you, helping Bill. us Thank out you, tonight at our Engage at the Bush Center, presented by Highland Capital Management, Understand the Border. Make sure to listen to Point of Order with Evan Smith, a great podcast. Learn a lot from it. Evan, thanks again for doing this. Thank you so much. Be sure to watch Understanding the Border, a conversation on life, culture, and commerce that Evan Smith moderated. You can watch it at www.bushcenter.org slash understandingtheborder. If you enjoyed this episode of The Strategist, please leave us a review or let us know what you thought on social media at The Bush Center on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for listening. 